If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Eight Eyes. Control man and bird in a fight for the eight jewels of power. Welcome to Nostalgia, a chronological exploration of every NES game released in North America. I'm Mike. I'm Sean. And I'm Joe. Guys, welcome to 1990. The year of my birth. Yep, I'm almost born. Yeah, but we think we called out on the 1989 uh, best of episode that we're going to like find out what game was closest to when we were born, and then that will be the game that you must play for the rest of your life. <laughs> I can't wait. Yeah. Hopefully, it's a good one. I mean, you I can't could wait roll to the play dice. whatever shmup came out on my birthday for the rest of my life. You're cursed. Yeah, but we're we're not starting uh, with a shmup uh, for 1990. Uh, who knows what 1990 will will actually bring us? There are so many games. We're gonna play more games than ever before. Uh, I feel like I'm writing the commercial for the season <laughs> rather than doing the episode. So. Um, uh, I think we just get right into it and talk about Eight Eyes because we we have a uh, a different game than we've ever played before, perhaps because it's got that whole like two player couch co op thing going on. Yeah, like an ace, yeah asymmetric yeah. couch co op. Uh, I, I mean, it's sort of like Sonic and Tails, but worse. Not worse. Uh, less emphasis on the tails, you know. Like, he was almost like another Sonic, whereas in this, it's, you're a bird. I think he's a falcon. It seems asymmetric uh, in the sense, I mean, in a lot of senses, but one of the senses is definitely that, like, one character is a lot more robust in his, like, uh, options than the other. Yeah, it's like, if you had to give, like, if you didn't just give your little brother an unplugged controller, uh, but you wanted to minimize the damage he could do, you'd play Eight Eyes. But I will say that I think that there's definitely um, a lot of potential for actual, like, help to become from, sec- yeah. from second player. You know, like, like I don't think it's like, uh, I'm trying to think of another example. You know, like, I mean, it does not exactly the same because it's not co-op, but like Duck Hunt, we found out you can plug in the other controller and control the ducks. And it's like, a, <laughs> it's like you barely even notice that, that there's a difference. Yeah. Uh, and this is like, okay, you can, you can be a significant help as player two. Yeah, and I don't know about you guys, but when I, whenever I play a game for Nostalgia, I try to go in as blind as possible, and when I first started playing Eight Eyes, I was like, oh, this is just another one of those side-scrolling uh, action games. Like it, it felt like a Castlevania clone in some ways, yeah. uh, but instead of a whip, you have a sword. And then all of a sudden, I realized that like I was controlling the Falcon. Like It wasn't even obvious to me at first that I was the one doing it. It felt like a mistake, like, oh, the... Falcon's moving when I'm moving and stuff like that. And then I realized, like, oh, there's a whole, like, control scheme for a one player to be both the uh, the hero and the, the Falcon at the same time. It, it does work better with two players, no doubt. 
But they give you the option to, uh, you know, I think that's better than having a computer controlled AI Falcon. Like if the game is built for two players to one be, you know, one be the hero, one be the Falcon as a one player experience, you can still try to bring in the reins as both of them. Yeah, I, w- I read the manual before I booted it up, and it was describing sort of how they were going to go about this. Um, and I was kind of intimidated by what they were saying. Like, it's almost like a trope uh, on this podcast, how often we talk about, like, oh, there's only so many buttons on the controller, and it's, like, what they're trying to do um, to, like, how many mechanics you can fit onto this controller, kind of. And now you have to control two characters. And when they give you these two characters, uh, you're, you're kind of, like, the controller is fighting with itself to control them all. And um, it almost it's almost like, compared to the two-player that I've seen, um, playing as both Orin and Kutris, the name of the bird, it's kind of like you got your arm tied behind your back or something. Yeah, I think that there was. Well, I, I, let me let me ask you guys this. I don't know how much we want to get into the co-op right off the bat. I mean, it's, it seems like it's a lot about co-op. So, uh, let me ask you guys: Did you guys play with uh, another person? I did. You did. I did not. I also did not. But I but I messed around in other ways with the co-op. But uh, Mike, how was it? You know, it does work. Uh, it's probably like I still think it has that effect where like because I was doing it with my wife, so it's like you know you could try to convince her to play first, and then you tell her she's got to be the Falcon. You know, it's like and the Falcon um, can the Falcon actually can be very useful because it can attack certain enemies that the um, what'd you say his name was Orin. Yeah. Orin is the thing on is the name on the screen. <laughs> okay, yeah. So Orin can attack certain enemies, but the Falcon can. So that can be very useful and make and make that player feel useful. And then there's also things like hidden in the wall that the Falcon can only grab. And yeah. the things hidden in the wall are easy to do when it's just you. You know, like as a single player thing where it's like, all right, now I got to be the Falcon for a second. Like that that part's achievable, but the um the attacking part is more like a. You know, you want to be on. Uh, you almost want to be like on the staircase below them, and then take control of the Falcon and start yeah. and start fighting. So that kind of stuff proved really useful. But I do think that the Falcon still feels like a a little brother. See, I I'm, I found that there were there were enemies that weren't even. I mean, I, I noticed the enemies that you could only attack with the Falcon, but there were some that you could choose both. That I thought it was just more efficient to use the Falcon based on their positioning or like, oh, I'm going to jump down and I'm going to get stabbed immediately just because it's like one of those traps sort of, but I can send the Falcon down there and he sort of flies above. Um, so like I, I found it almost equal playing solo of times I wanted to use the, maybe not equal. I mean, maybe, maybe 60, 40. Now are like, you playing? Cause you said that you found a, a, a way to do this. Were you playing the two player just with two controllers? Yes. Okay. So, because that, because the thing that the thing that I think is a total miss on this game's part is like when you play one player, it still gives you that tool of the Falcon. It clearly wants this to be a robust one player experience with both things, but it doesn't work the same. You can't move the Falcon. I mean, unless I missed how to do it, you can't control where the Falcon is going while you're quote unquote controlling the Falcon. You just control when it attacks, and it just swat swoops from left to right of the yeah, screen. That is that is sort of how it goes about. Um, and it, it, I just didn't have the mental bandwidth. Like I was always, I was either like 
trying to just jump and then I would accidentally uh, send the falcon out or I'd be trying to send the falcon out and I'd just be crouching maniacally. It, uh, I, I think maybe I should try this game again playing it your way with uh, with the, my imaginary friend holding the second controller. Yeah, I mean, it's still not perfect, but uh, it, it, the way it works that way is that it's the Falcon still just flies side to side if you just leave it alone. Yeah. But you can use the, the D-pad to to move left, right, or up, down, which is something you can't even move up and down with the Falcon yeah. in one player. So, like, what I would use the Falcon a lot for would be, like, I'm on a top platform, there's an enemy below me that I don't want to jump into that pit with this enemy, I send the Falcon down to kill it. Um, But... It's still, I mean, obviously still not perfect when you're using two controllers. Like, I would still basically have to stop with my main character Mm -hmm. and start controlling the Falcon. But to that point, I almost feel like it could have been, you know, a solution they could have done is, like, press select to switch to the Falcon. Yes, you're stuck standing still, which is why it's still better with two players, but at least you have control. Yeah, I wonder why they didn't choose the select option, because I thought about that too, Joe. Uh, it is worth mentioning that they did include in the manual a note that you don't have complete freedom of movement in a one-player game. So they weren't, like, trying to hide it. They I, they knew their own <laughs> limitations, too. But they didn't tell you that on the back of the box. They waited until you bought the game yeah. <laughs> uh, to tell you that the Falcon's a little useless without a friend. <laughs> so, yeah, I think, like, you know, the, the co-op thing makes it very unique. And uh, I, I do think it's worth trying it out because that alone kind of gives it, like, a plus one factor if you know if you're scoring this thing uh on a scale like i would say like one point alone is just for the fact that like a another player can jump in and actually do something that isn't just being you know another uh orin yeah and we give we, we give multiplayer games a lot of credit on this show so um it's definitely i should be i should be trying this <laughs> but as but as we're gonna get into i'm not quite sure that uh, two-player asymmetrical co-op is enough uh, to go through everything uh, that this game offers. It's not, it's not enough of a cool factor. <laughs> and um, I think no better way to start than to just uh, walk through like how the game kind of lays itself out. And that is that it takes the, uh, I always call it the Mega Man style of approach, where you can uh, select the stage you want to go to. There are eight castles, each with an evil duke who controls one of the eight jewels not eyes but the jewels are the eyes the jewels are their eyes i don't know uh but that's the idea you're collecting these jewels from these dukes you gotta go to eight different castles and the order that you go to them unlike mega man kind of does matter see when you defeat a duke you get uh you get a sword of a certain like color and then that sword is only powerful on one specific duke in another castle and if you don't go Immediately to that duke, you'll lose that sword uh, for whatever reason. You can't, like, have an inventory of your swords. You just get the next color, and you drop, like, let's say you picked up the green. You just drop the green and grab the red, and now you have to figure out that. So there is an actual, like, optimal uh, order level, which you could argue Mega Man does. But what I'm saying is that Mega Man gives you the freedom to say, I want this power up, and then you have it for the remainder of the game. Uh, Eight Eyes takes a different approach where it says, no, you're just going to get this Duke's sword, and then if you don't use it on the other correct Duke, get ready for a grind fest boss battle. Yeah, <laughs> like the, it's it's mostly um, like it's just a way to pad the length. Like there's it, it, you have to do trial and error. Like there's it's not that like there's anything fun with these swords. It's just it's a, it's basically a key item 
to make the next fight easier, right? Right, right. It doesn't uh it doesn't do anything. It doesn't have a like, you know, this sword uh has a beam shoot out of it when you swing it. Like nothing like that. To be honest, I didn't even realize that that was what was happening. I just thought I kept getting a more powerful powerful sword, and maybe I lucked out a couple times because it maybe twice I I got to these bosses and they were okay, but there was one boss I kept going back to and I just couldn't beat. And now I understand that maybe I just didn't have the right sword. Like every time I would go back to this level, this boss was just never any easier. Yeah. Uh, should we talk about the context behind these levels, like the story of the game? The story of the game is great, Sean, so go for it. <laughs> okay, so in the, you know, in our version of the game, you apparently play as uh somebody in the post-apocalypse. There was a nuclear war and hundreds of years have passed and now we've basically reset our technology and our uh, like such as you know what weaponry and our interests such as falconry um to something around the 1800s in some places and something around like the BC era in some other places and all these dukes got these jewels that were formed at the core of a nuclear explosion and if the wrong people get their their, their head their hands on them, uh, it could it could blow up the world again, I guess. Um, but it's it's just funny because like there's this whole convolution for the, the game in the American version, but it's very simple in in the original version where it just like it just is the 1800s. <laughs> <laughs> right, you're, you're, and you know what's interesting too about like forget even the whole like plot difference of 1800s versus like distant future after a nuclear apocalypse after the nuclear apocalypse i'm supposed to believe that like all these countries just exist exactly the same way that they yeah. always did and with the same stereotypes too like <laughs> all of these guys the, the spain guy is like a sword fencer the Arabian guy just has, like, you know, the Lawrence of Arabia hat for no reason. It's, like, all these things that they didn't change anything about them. And then the Africa guy is just their token black person. It's, like, this is all, like, crazy stuff to to just suggest about the distant future when they could have just taken the easy route and kept the game the same way. But I guess maybe, you know, in 1990, nothing was hotter than the atomic bomb. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There was still the Soviets that we had to worry about, and, uh, you know, the Cold War, Cold War. But I guess the one thing that, in in the manual, like, okay, uh, you've got this, this grandiose architecture and all this stuff that makes it look like the 1800s, but if you look into the manual, you get a gun, then it's really just like a Beretta. So that that sells me on the post-apocalypse that's the one yeah. piece of future <laughs> that was the thing that i was like oh there's a gun in here but uh, yeah until honestly uh until knowing the story i was like okay yeah whatever it's just a gun like no big deal it's like a fantasy world maybe it's like a maybe then i was thinking like maybe it's like a like a bloodborne type situation yeah where it's like what what is that like uh the silver bullets yeah Now, the manual shows you the eight dukes that you'll go up against, and uh, next to each of them is a, like, 
uh, jewel that they that they represent. You know, so you got uh, one's like a black sphere, the other one's a diamond, um, so on and so forth. Sapphire. What I found was interesting, and I did not know this in my playthrough. I I knew this in my research going afterwards. Is that the sword that you get from defeating a certain duke? Based on its color, right? So say you got the green sword, you would then go back to the manual, and if you look at the Italy uh, boss, the Italy duke, uh, <laughs> he has the sapphire with the, the, or emerald, sorry, the green emerald. That green sword means that he is weak to that emerald. So the color okay. of the gem corresponds to the, what the boss is weak to, and in no way do they lay that out in the manual. <laughs> it's just like a hint. But yeah. like, Wow, what an interesting uh, way to just like you know that's the key, right? Like somehow are, they there's a decipher there. <laughs> are they are they color coded in any way on screen in their sprites? The sword is like in the top well, the, corner. The sword that you, you have is, but yeah. is the duke that to my knowledge that's not the case. Yeah, see, because like, that would be I think that would be much more useful and cool where you can. I feel like that would be I'd be more likely to like pick up on that. Yeah, but see, like, that oh, allows them to sell the, the game on sword. Blockbuster. Yeah, yeah. You know, like they can't. They need you to buy the manual with the game as well. <laughs> yeah, but when back then? Oh, it, you mean you mean like a, a separate manual that doesn't come with the game? No, no, like no, no. I'm saying, do you? I don't think Blockbusters ever gave you the manual, did they? Well, no. Yeah. But Blockbuster, if there was anything really necessary, they would like put like a little text blurb on the back of the box that that like gave you some information for some games. Mm. Right, and the one I, guy man, who figured I'm this out. That. I, I thought that you got manual. I mean, I'm talking at least like PS1, PS2 days. I thought you got manuals, but I don't really remember. Anyway, it's not even that cool of an inclusion because, like you said, Joe, it's not It's not even obvious. Like, it'd be cool if they almost put in like a, you know, hey, pay attention uh, to the jewels that the bosses hold, you know, uh, as like mm-hmm. some kind of call out. But right. it's it's just not there. So I... Just question the uh, all this to go back to the very beginning of what we were talking about with the selecting the stages. I question <laughs> like the, why that even uh, it's not it's not some elaborate puzzle. It's just something that you might find out as a happy accident later on years later. You know, like I only found this out because of game FAQs. How many people are really going to put together that the color of the diamond in the manual corresponds with the color of the sword that they are weak to in the game? Yeah, I don't know. It's almost like if they really wanted to make this player friendly, they would have just laid it out as a level one, two, three, four. And again, it's just kind of padding otherwise. Yeah, I think it's like they they they, they were like mixing two different things. It's like that you could they they like it being separate and and or whatever you call it, like freedom of choice of which one you go to or whatever i don't know why i'm like yeah. fumbling what this concept is you you have the option but then also they want like this puzzle element but like without giving you that information like i feel like you could have both those things by saying yeah you got to figure this out like you got to figure out the color coding between the two of them and then that gives you the incentive to play a different thing and say okay where should i go next if you do it the other way, it's. I feel like. I mean, yeah, it does feel like it's just artificial padding, like just trial and error. Because they already they have like a puddle. Oh, not, not, not a puddle. They already have <laughs> a puzzle like built into the end of the game, where like you know you get all these, you get all these jewels, and there are like while you're playing the game, you get the the hint scrolls that tell you how you're supposed to arrange them. It's like that. 
that's already your puzzle. <laughs> like, don't yeah. add more. <laughs> that's if you're lucky enough to find all those. If scrolls, you find too. them, yeah, right. Because those scrolls say, uh, you know, it's not the most intricate riddle or anything like that. It literally just kind of lays out the, you know, the put the black one next to the pink one or whatever. I'm not, I'm not saying exactly what it says. Yeah, but the, it's you a know, Resident Evil puzzle. You need, yeah, you kind of need all of them to then figure out like the start and end points. Uh, if you just have like one of the scrolls, you might know which two are next to each other, but not even where they should be placed. Yeah. on the altar, uh, which is which is the end of the game too, which is kind of weird. It's just that. Um, once you get to, um, once you beat all eight dukes, you wind up at the House of Ruth, complete, uh, complete that stage, and then it just has, okay, now place the jewels on the altar and enter the, the, the ending screen. Uh, it feels kind of weird. It feels like you should put all eight jewels down, and then that accidentally summons this thing that, like, everybody was nervous was going to happen, right? <laughs> Yeah, you should be the reason the world ends in this. <laughs> or, you know, the the trick, you know, like you were tricked into spawning the monster that is going to end the world, and now you must now defeat final it. Boss. Yeah. yeah. I like that. I feel like that's a Let's Final Fantasy trope. Game. Yeah. <laughs> but I think, like, you actually have to beat the game three times. Right. <laughs> and that's, that is true <laughs> to get the true ending, but you won't notice anything different if you just beat it once for whatever. Yeah. Remember that beating it once requires you to probably take the optimal route of knowing exactly which color sword re represents which boss, and then also knowing uh, all of the scrolls that hint at which uh, jewel should be placed on which part of the altar. If you knew that, you would get to the ending that would reveal that the password to play the harder difficulty is the name of the developer twice, Taxan, Taxan. And you play through the game a second time, you get all the way to the end, and it's still kind of, it says like, wow, like amazing job beating the harder difficulty, like not many people have made it this far, but hints that there might be something more, but then doesn't give the password for, the f for how to get to the oh, third. Oh, yeah. It's just crazy. It's like, I found this out online, which I imagine like was done through looking at code or something, or maybe it was given away in a magazine at one point, but the code <laughs> is final stage. And that sounds like it's going to take you to some secret boss fight or, you know, like the House of Ruth, but backwards now or something like that. But instead, it's just playing the whole game again. So you're the final stage. Everything's they're, faster. But they're considering that the like they're considering that a stage. The whole game is just a stage, <laughs> right? Like now you're on the final stage of the game. Uh, this is stage three. And I'm not sure how you find it. I'm guessing, like I said earlier, a magazine. But that is how you get the true ending, which is really, uh, it starts off as congratulating you, pretending like as if like you're the first mortal who ever got there. But then kind of turns into like this push about how great a developer Taxan is for making <laughs> one of the hardest games on the NES, yeah. which is which is their words. Like they're saying like we did this, like we made it a hard game. I don't think that's what you'd be proud about is that like, yeah, we made our game so hard. Ha ha ha. And I don't even know, like, I didn't, I didn't even beat this game once because I was fumbling over the controller so much with this goddamn bird. Um, so I don't even know. Maybe if, like, you and Joe, like, had a sleepover and spent eight hours with this game, you guys could do it. But I, not in any world would I be able to. All right, sleepover. How Long to Beat puts it at two hours and 38 minutes, um, which I guess is, like... That's got to be just the one, though. Right. Even if it's yeah. not the one, I'm just saying, like, that's got to be a great player because I, I spent more <laughs> than two hours and 38 minutes with this and didn't even beat the game. 
Yeah, I think that's if you know, first of all, well, the the color coding trick and you know like where to go and you know where all the you know where all the item the scrolls are. Like if you're playing this for the first time and you're playing it blind, it's going to take a lot longer than that in my opinion. I think so. I used the words Castlevania clone at the top of the episode. I was obviously referring to just the first one because the first Castlevania and the second one are pretty different. And what I meant by that is really like almost everything that I could think of with the architecture, the enemies, the way you climb up the stairs really slowly and how you climb up the stairs, uh, the sub weapons, because uh, that is like another thing where a lot of the sub weapons are even the same kinds of sub weapons like the boomerang and stuff. However, uh, Eight Eyes does let you carry multiple ones and change them on the fly. But the trade-off is, is that using these sub-weapons in Castlevania was you destroy things and get hearts, and then, like, five hearts equals uh, one use of your boomerang, which sounds like a lot, but you're collecting hearts all the time. In Eight Eyes, I I felt like I was depleted of my sub-weapon use very quickly. Yeah, it felt like you really had to kind of save it and collect as many of those crosses that give you more sub-weapon energy, whatever you want to call it, they have to collect to use it. But yeah, it did feel a little more like, I have to save this for when I need it. And I I agree that, like, between, like, this is just going back to the uh, the the similarities in general, um, that, yeah, the sub-weapons are, are, are very similar. The way in which you accrue them is different, but, uh, and, and the walking cycle and, and the stairs, but the, I think the one thing, the most the most important part of this similarity is not similar at all, and it's between the whip and this sword. The whip feels good to 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 you know, lash. Is that if that's the verb for whip to whip? Um, whereas this dinky fencing sword, it, it it's one of the least impactful weapons that we've played since that other medieval game with the. The the ghouls and ghosts or one of those, no. <laughs> not not that one, where was, where the the sword just sort of like wiggles in your wrist. If you remember that game from yeah yeah wizards yeah. and warriors, wizards and warriors, yes, <laughs> least impactful weapon. I wouldn't have thought this was quite to that level of bad. I think that it was normally like well at first it was fine. I think what the, you know, the problem was just that every other enemy with a sword or some sort of handheld weapon had one that was just like like 125 percent the length of yours yeah so you, you go could never from get close. the reach of a whip to the reach of this thing right like, that's a right. pretty big difference yeah but so it felt like i had to just always like time my hits right like wait yeah. until like i'd have to like wait and like watch the pattern of every enemy and see like when is their moment that they're not attacking for a second and that's when i can like take a quick step in stab take a quick step out that, but yeah well, it was not ideal yeah, that's my biggest gripe with this game is that that changes the pace of play and makes going through the levels, the especially the longer they are, a chore because every enemy is kind of like this fencing match, which is something we all of us called out as really cool in Zelda 2 The Adventures of Link. Here it's not as cool because you have to like go in, strike, run back, Go back, strike, and yes, it's not every single enemy, but a good amount of the enemies, especially, um, you know, as you get further on into the stages and, and uncover, like, you know, some different ones, it requires, like, you know, oh, I can't just 
go around this enemy. I can't just hop over them or I can't just take a different route. Like I have to face off against this enemy and I have to figure out like how many hits do they even take before they'll be done, yeah. you know? Like uh, it it really slows down the game in my opinion. And especially as one player, the the Falcons not um you know, it's something you have to do from afar as well, so that doesn't help really with uh, the pace of play either. Yeah. I think, like, with any criticism of the actual mechanics of this game, you just have to, by default, end with the qualifier, and also you have to worry about the goddamn bird. So Yeah. Well, that's why I think that what we're talking about with this, like, go in and jump out uh, with half of the enemies, that's why I ended up switching to the Falcon so often. But you know what really doesn't help the pace of play is putting down one controller and picking up another <laughs> controller and then over and over again every time you want to switch. So it was not a uh, great solution. Yeah, depending on how you uh, adjust to the to the different enemies, though, too, sometimes it, it can feel like a sword is like a, is like a knife, like a kitchen knife, because you can get pretty close to these guys and still not make contact with them. Uh, I guess that's more of like a hitbox issue. But it just made me feel really powerless to them at, at certain points in the game. Yeah. Like yeah, and then I feel like it compensated for that a lot with, and I don't know if this is a negative or a positive. I think in some cases it's a negative, some it's a positive, but you just have so much health that you can kind of, like, suffer through this sword and just tank tank hits for a while until you realize, like, oh, shit, now I don't have any health left for this level. But, like, you have a lot. You can take a lot of hits. Yeah, I think that's necessary with just how encumbering the uh the the actual combat is in this yeah game. and it makes me wonder if they changed your hp bar as an afterthought when they realized like wow this is not uh ideal combat something about this the way this orange guy walks too and and his sprite design it looks like it's like a skeleton with hair and a red cloak around him. Like his bones are very pronounced when he walks and it just, it's unsettling to me, but Sean, you know, the plot. So maybe that was explained as like, you know, part of the fallout. Yeah. Yeah. He's a ghoul. I would imagine that. Yeah. He's just got very pronounced bones now. (laughs) Well, speaking of skeletons, Sean, since you're the story expert here, do you know why after every level, you are served your next power up by a skeleton on a platter at a table. It is so after weird. your cup of tea. I I yeah. love it. I I love that. Like somewhere off camera, with each of these dukes, he's just like, uh, "All right, I give up. Uh, let's have let's have a quick talk about how we're going to uh, we're going to get the rest of these jewels." Oh, ah, yes, my my ghoul companion servant. <laughs> Uh, will come and serve us tea. And I don't know what it's about. I don't know what it's about. I love it. (laughs) Between the music and the weirdness of these, like, these post-boss scenes, um, it really does set a weird vibe, but I'm here for it. And that's something that is not uh, explained by it being the 1800s. No. (laughs) (laughs) People were more polite to each other back then. They'd be like, I concede defeat... Let's have a cup of tea. In life and in undeath. Yeah. It is enjoyable, though, that the skeleton, after he serves the tea and, and the sword, uh, he, he walks away, but it looks like, it looks like to me at least, he's laughing about it. Like, he finds the whole situation <laughs> funny as well. His, but his mouth just, like, chatters pretty fast. And I, I, I associate that with laughing, because otherwise he's, like, saying something under his breath to us. And, I, you know, no skeleton servant would be rude. No. Right? Not right. in this world. He's laughing with us. 
<laughs> a couple things it does right on the Castlevania uh, side of clones is that uh, there aren't any like pits, at least that I uh, saw, like no like uh, infinite pits or um, the the platforming in the game was a little more varied than Castlevania one was. Uh, I guess I'm talking more about how you control the jumps weren't like super stiff and the knockback wasn't like ridiculous. If if any, actually, I, I can't remember now if there was knockback. Uh, I the the jump. I remember realizing that I really liked the arc of the jump, um, <laughs> but I don't know if it if that was more or less sort of propped up than uh, than in Castlevania. Yeah, I mean, it feels like uh, a a good jump on like probably on the like uh, on the curve of NES jumps so far, <laughs> but there is still a. Uh, it's not up there with like the perfect jumps. Like there's still like a feels like a little bit of a delay or like a cool down to your jump or something that like makes it feel ever so slightly sticky. I hear that. You know, as good of a game as Castlevania is, uh that jump can get really annoying at times where you actually have to be at the edge of the platform in order to successfully make the jump between the uh pits. So between this having a better jump and not having uh any pits I'd say that that is a step in the right direction. Put a check mark next to improve jump. <laughs> and what about the puzzle element to these stages? There's these switches that need to be flipped or turned on by the Falcon, and they don't really evolve at all. It's just turn them on and the doors will open. Otherwise, you can't proceed. Yeah, I don't think it ever was. I feel like it was. It's like one of those things that like doesn't add or really subtract much for me. It just felt like a a little bit of like a maybe artificial way to uh, incorporate the Falcon again. Right, because otherwise it's like, get, you know, you have to go from either left to right or up to down uh, to navigate through these stages. You can't, you can't like cheat your way uh, through the door at the end. So what's the point of like locking it other than to well, say like, well, now you have to go back around and look for that uh, switch. Yeah, I don't know. I guess, like, it did have, like, a timer on it, too. So, like, there were some times where I, I think I could hit the switch myself and then run over there. And then there were other times where it's like, the, yeah, it doesn't. I think yeah, that I, maybe the idea was, like, oh, you 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 have to get, send the Falcon out so you can get to the door in time. But it never gets hard to get to the door in time because you can just stand at the door while you're sending the Falcon. Yeah, I agree. And I guess you just have to defend yourself. I don't it was, know. It's but, give the bird something to do. Yeah. Did they give the bird enough to do? Uh, forget about the the whole fact that another player can can be the bird. Just the the fact that the bird can mostly just either attack or um or pick up scrolls or flip switches. Is that enough for like a falcon's job? <laughs> um, I don't know. I guess I guess I would I would like to see power-ups or something for the bird. Just I know it's ridiculous that sounds just to make it feel like it's as robust as player one but like otherwise yeah that's everything player one does it's just player one has more tools to do it yeah i guess i would have liked them to play more with the falcon only parts like if you know if you really wanted to embrace both two player and as a single player thing if there were certain areas in levels that only the falcon would be useful in and it was kind of like whether you're playing as one player or two players, this is the section where you really have to like focus in on your, um, you know, your Falcon skills and your movement and and uh, puzzle solving or something. It would have seemed a little more useful. I, you know, they don't have to go as far as like 
locking off sections where you're just the Falcon or, or something like that, or that, you know, crazy stuff like now the Falcon can pick up Orin and uh, fly around uh, with him. I don't, Falcon I don't need... Falcon can't do that, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> well, That's true. You know what? I actually just had like a slight change of heart right now while thinking about it. Like as far as do, does the Falcon need more? Uh, I think that for actually, and again, I haven't played a two player, so it's hard, like, you know, hard to really judge that. But I think that what the balance is, is that the Falcon can fly and has that mobility, but can't use power ups or projectiles. Whereas the guy, I'm not going to use their names, I don't remember them, Orion, Orin. whatever, uh, the, the, the guy can not, doesn't have the same mobility, but can use a couple of projectile weapons and, and, you know, has a little bit more of an arsenal. So, like, that, I, I, I like that conceptually. That yeah, otherwise, you like, just get another guy, like we were yeah, talking in the beginning. Yeah, or just be the Falcon, because you can do everything the guy can do and fly. <laughs> but the, my thing is almost on the opposite. Like, my criticism here for the one-player experience, the fact that both Orin and Cutrus have their own health gauge. Like, for me, as a single-player... Uh, I don't want to have to watch two different health gauges in addition to how much power I've got left in my magic item or whatever. Uh, it, and especially because they're kind of like shown in reverse, like it, it goes down to the left instead of down to the right. Uh, it was very, it was kind of hard for me to read, but uh, it, I think in the single player experience, because you aren't in direct control of this goddamn bird, you shouldn't have to worry about the bird dying. Maybe that's me thinking the game should be too easy, but uh, I I also just, there's too much going on. That's another thing that I, I think when, if I heard you say that before I had played it, I would totally agree. But again, having played it totally differently, where I'm stopping picking up another controller, then using the bird, I didn't mind having the two health bars because like, actually I would sometimes use that to my advantage where it's like, Okay, Orin is is weak right now. I'm gonna send in Cutrus instead. But yeah. like, I so don't think I, I that would work the meant, same way. Yeah, I specifically meant the the designed one player experience. I, right. I think it yeah. does. Serve <laughs> I guess a that's purpose. true. I guess I keep forgetting that I did not play yeah. the intended <laughs> one player. <laughs> and I just while we're talking about like the individual stages, uh, I said architecture but i really meant like the graphics of the game and the way it all looks is stylized like castlevania yes kudos to the people in the manual though for the names of some of these enemies uh sometimes we do highlight funny names i can't remember which games they are but this one really uh leaned into that it 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 knows that it's being funny for instance (laughs) the skeletons are named yoga uh, because they have because they're sitting cross-legged in their picture <laughs> and for no other reason at all. So I have to think that like whatever the explanation was for the Japanese version of why the skeletons exist in the 1800s, this was the photo that was provided to them and they had to include it in their manual. They couldn't just hire another person to draw the enemies again. So they used <laughs> those and they said, all right, well, this guy's sitting cross-legged, so he's yoga. And uh, this guy has a scimitar, so he's scimitar Sam. Uh, you know, uh, this guy is just a normal person, so we'll call him ugly. <laughs> I, I particularly liked Crossboy and Sir Slice. I just like the idea that, like, in the post-apocalypse, there will be a guy walking around in, like, a cloak with a scimitar. He called himself Scimitar Sam. 
<laughs> it's also, yeah, it's a weird scale of like who gets a name. Like Scimitar Sam gets a name because of his scimitar or because his name was Sam and then he picked up the scimitar. Because... I think his name was Sam. And, no, but th- you know. think, think about this, okay? Mace, what was his name? He just he well, carries a mace, but he doesn't get a name. He's not he's not Mace Windu. I I want to say like, that okay if he if he's Simitar 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 Sam. I think that if his name wasn't Sam beforehand, they just call him Simitar. You know that sounds cooler. Like Simitar Sam, mm. it sounds like someone that doesn't really respect you gave you that name. Well, poor what Mace was born Sam without Manuel Smith. That's what we'll be calling him now. No longer Sam the Manual. We'll be calling him Scimitar, Scimitar Sam. Sam. Well, Sam also gave himself that name. Or was it Mike? I think I, I gave know. it to him. It's a new season, and we're trying to bring even more information to the people. Patron of the show and all-around friendly, cool dude Stephen Greenwell reached out to me on our Discord and said he'd be happy to provide some information to the players. So I'm not going to refuse help. I asked, what do you got? And uh, I was, you know, not sure what I would get, but what I got was an awesome amount of content. And I I, I just want to highlight some things. There's no way I, you know, this is like its own show if if I said everything in here. But I thought one thing that was interesting that we don't usually look at is like sales figures and uh, and like advertisements from the time. And uh, he managed to find that the game was originally priced forty five dollars uh, when it when it released, and that you know that's not like the standard NES game price. NES game prices were just kind of priced whatever they like deemed the value of. So like some games are forty five, some games are forty, some games are thirty. Uh, the $30 game is notice, notably uh, Anticipation, which was like a, you know, a, a low involved game. So I can gotcha. understand like they're selling eight eyes as something like, you know, this is a big adventure game. And if anybody remembers Final Fantasy three, that was like $80 uh, when it released. And the whole idea was not that like it contained any more like it wasn't more expensive to make or anything. They just said, like, yeah, it's a bigger adventure. So we're going to charge more for these games. Yeah, I kind of remember uh, you know, like games on the PS One, like when they were kind of budget titles, they'd be twenty bucks instead of the fifty. Right, right. And so it was forty five dollars when it first came out, but then immediately, uh, like in later this year, it goes down to twenty dollars. And then by December of nineteen ninety, there's even a like five dollar off coupon specifically for Eight Eyes. Like it's not for every <laughs> game. It's it's for like um. Air Fortress, 720, Mad Max, uh, Infiltrator, and Eight Eyes. And the funny thing about the uh, the Eight Eyes price is that it was already down to 20. It's not like it went back up to 45. So now this game is $15 in just 12 months. And, you know, for what it's worth, it's now $10.70 for just the cart uh, on, like, eBay. So you still didn't make out with too good of a deal. <laughs> Inflation adjusted. When you think about $15 versus now $10. 
So is this one of those like situations where they were just expecting it to be like, oh, this is going to be like a mega hit, and then it just didn't even come close, and they're like, we gotta get rid of these. Yeah, I mean, it just sounds like they, yeah, they overordered everybody, overordered this game, and uh, they need to clear that that stock. Well, you know what makes this game so popular? What's that? Its position in uh, your emulators. It's ah. always it's eight eyes with uh. eight with the number eight. It's always going to be like the first game in your files. So what about ten yard fight? Uh, eight is uh, smaller than ten, Joe. So yeah, but the one doesn't. <laughs> yeah, just but go the by zero the would digit. count too. No, it's not a know, zero eight eyes. It would be. It would be after if we're gonna yeah, start arguing about emulator file positioning. It would be after 10 oh, You guys fight. talk amongst yourselves. I'm going to check my no intro set right now. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, shit, he my, can't be called out uh, like that. Yeah, yeah, so Eight Eyes is before 10-yard fight. Uh, the only really? thing, Yeah, because the way, the way things work is that 10 is a larger number than 8. So the 1 doesn't like prerequisite. Uh, I don't appreciate your tone, Mike. I'm just saying, uh, the, the, num- the one game, though, that does come before all of them, and we've played it. What would come before uh, Eight Eyes, and knowing that Eight Eyes comes before Ten Yard Fight? No uh, guesses. Great. The, the answer is 3D World Runner, because it is 3-D, uh, and the 3 is lower than 8. So that's how numbers <laughs> continue to work. All right. Well, this file system uh, is not normal. Yes, this is not how alphabetically, or well, I mean, no, it's not alphabetic. But if you we'll put go something alphabetically, digit digit. when you get to the n- number part, you usually just start with the first digit. I thought. I mean, I, I'm not gonna. We don't have to do it on the show, but like, I challenge you guys to just do it. Just do it on like with your own. Oh, files. I mean, I believe like, you re- that that's where it's coming. No, but up, I'm saying like but... it's not like specific to my emulator. I'm saying like rename any of your files on your desktop in eight or ten, and it's gonna sort the eight first. I think that. Uh... We need to have another podcast about this. <laughs> we, we we just count numbers. The first episode will be number one, and we'll just say one, and then we'll move on and record the second episode. I think we should cut it together so it's like blocks of a thousand at the very least. Like I'm telling you, I swear in the past I've had that exact problem where I number things through like 15, and all the ones with one start going up above everything else, and then I gotta I gotta renumber them so it'll go correct. You're not crazy. You, that's Sean. the way. It, that's the way it usually works. I did just check. And, and Mike is right, but I don't know how. They must have changed it. In yeah, the they world. changed Everyone it. Everyone got together behind me and your back. It's one of those Mandela shit. effect <laughs> yeah. things. Yeah. You, know? like, you guys came from the universe where they sorted <laughs> by the first digit. Mike just edited the edited the wiki of how to sort things, and then everybody saw that. And we're like, oh shit, we we got this wrong. We got to update it real fast. Sorry, this part this isn't making it into the show anyway. So yeah, yeah that's right. I got Tim Apple on the phone and told him to fix this. <laughs> Speaking of fixing things, we did fix the Essential Games list last episode, and it is a little scary to know that when we record the Essential Games list for Eight Eyes or any game for 1990, um, it's it's very far away from the next time you'll get a chance to do any revising. So do, do you guys feel any pressure about your Essential Games list votes for this episode, knowing that you will have like two whole years before you can revisit your votes? Uh, I try I to felt live. Pressure. I've felt pressure about my Essential Games vote uh, list ever since I voted Excite Bike on in episode like three or whatever it was, uh, and then had to wait like just like a, two months to take it off. So yeah, for the, the three-year wait is going to be tough if I, if I decided something is different than I thought in the first place. Look, Mike, 
I live my life a quarter mile at a time. So well said. I'm Sean. never thinking about <laughs> what I'm gonna put on the essential games list before I play the game. And uh, I, I like my emotions to speak for me. And I'm not trying to strategize the essential games list like you guys. Understood. With that note, it feels like there's no better time to talk about eight eyes and the essential games list at the same time than in a little segment we call the essential games list. Sean, it's a new season, but it's still 2022 on the calendars, and you still get to vote first because of that rule I made in January of this year. <laughs> Your power's almost over, but you still get to go first. So what's I your wouldn't vote? call it power, you know. It's well, just... yeah, it's all it's all you know theoretical power. Technically, you could say something that makes one of us reconsider, right? True, true. Um... I wasn't expecting this. I thought that it went by the uh, the year of the of the show, but it does make sense. You'd be whoever's next would then get two hundred and something games for this. So <laughs> I get it. Um, I think Sam's next. Yeah. <laughs> um, we 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 we've been playing this game, and uh, I think it's been skewing negative. Uh, but it is just such a weird game. Um, between its weird. Uh, quirks and uh, we we were pretty positive on some things that we didn't talk a lot about. Like again, like this this game has a lot of good music in it, and I think the art in it is pretty good. Um, but beyond that, I just was befuddled most of the time. So I'm gonna say it's not essential. Joe, yeah, I really I had a good time with it too. I mean, I think that there's a lot of cool ideas in it. I think that the Two-player probably is really fun. I, I, I would like to play it. Uh, I, I love the, the, the idea, the, the concept of the Falcon thing. It just, in one player especially, they, they need to work out a lot of kinks. Uh, it, it's weird to me that they would give you the same tools in one player, but they like let them work totally differently. I feel like for the way I was playing it, which obviously was kind of a janky way to play it, uh, it felt really important to use both of those um both of those elements of gameplay, the, the the man and the bird, but in one player, it doesn't really give you enough freedom to actually use both of those. Like, it doesn't actually seem reasonable to ever really use the bird. Um, and beyond that, I think that there's just a there's a lot of quality of life and like other gameplay decisions that like need to be improved before I would be able to put this as essential. But uh, but I will say I think that this is a play. It this is, I think you should check this one out. Uh, and as weird as it sounds, if you can't play with a second player, I would recommend playing with a second controller and just putting one down and picking the other up when you need to change. Like, get yourself in a safe spot. Uh, it's definitely not the intended way. It's definitely not ideal, but I still had a fun time with it. But no, not essential. Almost everything I like about this game comes down to the cool uh, It Takes Two style couch co-op, but even after playing that... Um... Not It Takes Two, but this game. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> even after playing that, uh, Joe, I think you, you're you right that it's probably an easier and more interesting experience with a friend. But I was trying to say earlier that like the experience for the friend isn't a complete game. Like, you know, Orin does so much more than the Falcon. So the Falcon does kind of feel like the little brother role. And you're not doing, you know, you're not like, all of a sudden you're doing badass combos and you're like, you know, no, no, let me take this one. Like, you know, you're the Falcon. There's only so much you can do. Uh, so it the two-player 
whether it's by yourself or with a friend, doesn't fix the pacing issues I was talking about in regards to combat, platforming, progression with those switches over the doors, figuring out what the correct order is, is also a pacing issue because you more than likely won't pick the right sword for the right person just through guesswork. Uh, forcing the person to beat the game three times, even though I don't think anybody should have to do that. It wasn't okay in Ghosts and Goblins, and it's although it was kind of funny because that game was really, really hard. It's not okay here either because uh, they, they do it three times, and they don't even make it obvious how to do the third time. So for all those reasons, I'm out on this one. I don't think I would put it in my play it though either. Uh, I, I think it was... It was a, There was a lot going on in this game, and sometimes that can work in its favor, but I think what this game was trying to do, it didn't even pull off there. Um, I agree. I don't think it's a play it either. Cool. Um, it just has a couple bright spots. And if you want to see more bright spots on the NES, continue to join us uh, on this chronological journey through 1990. Who knows how many games we're playing in 1990? It's like 100-something. Uh, 190 maybe even which is crazy because we just <coughs> played 90 games just for 1989 next week we're gonna play bases loaded 2 the second season and if you're joining us on our patreon uh, patreon.com slash nostalgia we have uh our nostalgia bites episodes where we'll be doing uh, kid dracula for the month of december because nothing says christmas like kid dracula <laughs> and we're also doing for all patrons, no matter what level you subscribe at, there's only two levels, by the way. I wasn't going to pretend like there's some secret $1,000 a month level. Uh, just on the two levels, either $1 or $5, everybody gets access to our special Game Boy Launch Games episode. We're not doing a chronological Game Boy exploration. We're not about to go review every Game Boy game. It's just that it feels kind of weird to talk about Nintendo's uh, 1989 and not cover their biggest release of the year, which is an entire new system with some very exclusive games. Fun.